I want to put my voice behind anyone who who has a sound to make or who is scared to make a sound. Talk to me. Questioning Artists, a podcast where we believe that inquiry and art making are both essential parts of life, and so we invite you to listen as artists share fascinating and thoughtful responses to questions about their origins, their training and mentors, their art making, and what lights their inspirational fires. I'm your host, Kate Michael Gibson. I'm an artist who wears many hats, including writer, producer, performer, story maker, and now podcaster. I'm a founding member of Convergence's Theater Collective. CTC is a group of pioneering theater artists and innovative teachers dedicated to creating original work and re-envisioning classics. And in 2018, we turned 10. As a part of our 10-year anniversary, we are exploring how to tell CTC's story in multiple ways through the voices of our amazing collaborating artists. This podcast is inspired by that storytelling idea, as well as by a dream I had about sitting down to talk one-on-one with the many amazing and talented artists I know. I was inspired by other folks doing wonderful things with podcasts, especially storytelling shows. I found that hearing firsthand from brave and honest people sharing themselves openly and with vulnerability was not only deeply moving and educational and inspirational, it was a source of real human connection for me. Since I've always adored art and art makers, this show combines three of my longtime loves. Artists, CTC, and personal storytelling. On today's episode, I sit down with the amazing Liz Stanton. Liz is an equity actor, a teacher of acting, a sound designer, composer, creator of new work, and theatrical development producer for Convergence's Theater Collective. Liz shares with us insights about her process, her hopes for the future of theater, and how she brings her imagination and expertise to each project. Liz, thank you for being with us on Questioning Artists today. Let's warm up by learning a little bit about you. Thanks, Kate. It's great to be here. Well, my name is Liz Stanton. I am a theater artist. So by that, I mean I make theater. I play characters in some other people's plays, and I also write my own things. I do devised work. I'm a sound designer sometimes, and I also teach. So in those ways, I am a theater artist. Yeah, I was brought up in Denver, Colorado, and I think my earliest artistic influence was singing. My family sang, and I loved to sing. So I, and I was the kid in church where the adults would turn their head and look for who was singing (laughs) and then look down in like surprise. Like, especially at Christmas, 
singing the Christmas carols. I loved singing the Christmas carols. And I would sing out. <laughs> I was not a shy singer. Uh, and then and I played the piano. I We had a piano in our home. And I... I wanted to take piano lessons when I was like four yeah. and the teacher in our neighborhood would not take me until I learned how to read. And so I just did, you know, my parent, my dad mostly would sit with me and we'd like poke around on the piano, but then I had lessons and I had a great piano teacher who let me sing and play. Like I wasn't very good at playing the left hand along with the right hand and singing. That was too much. She'd play the left hand and I'd play the right hand and she'd let me sing, like even in recitals. So that was also a real gift. When we have a new project at CTC, we don't always know which of the many incredible perspectives Liz will bring to it. But we do know that we definitely want her on board because she specializes in making the impossible possible. Now, I would love to know how to do that. Can you share your secret with us, Liz? How do I make the impossible possible? I guess the first thing is the attitude of possibility. Like, there's infinite possibility. And many, many right ways of doing something. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't really think of things as impossible. But that phrase was actually put to me uh, just... Uh, I guess five or six years ago when I, I met a playwright named Peter Grambois and I met him at a party and he was starting, he's a novelist primarily and um, was writing some plays and I was simply making conversation and said, well, I'd love to read any plays you'd like to send me or I teach acting. If I could use any of them in my scene class, that'd be great. And then I had had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do a piece in the solo United Solo Theater Festival, mm -hmm. but I did not want to write my own play. I did not want it to be autobiographical. And so I had no idea I was going to say this, but I just threw it out there. I said, or if you have a play for a woman in her middle age, you know, send it to me. And he looked, he paused and looked right at me and said, I'll send it to you tomorrow. And he did. He had a play for one woman in her middle age, and he sent it to me that night. And I read the first five pages, and I was like, I have to do this play. And he said, I don't know if it's really a play. I mean, she changes to a tree in, in, in it, and I think it might be impossible to do. And I said, well, I specialize in the impossible. And yet, I don't really, I guess that's why I specialize in the impossible, because I don't really think it's impossible. I think there are many ways to accomplish anything, and I don't know all the ways to do it, but I'm willing to try and learn from other people, and there's so many amazing things you can do on the stage that are yeah. not possible anywhere else. So I'm, I'm always interested in that. I mean, honestly, I go through the literal versions of it first, and then work into the more magical or the more transform transformational or how yeah. does it work? Is it music? Is it sound? Is it light? Yeah. Does something disappear because it goes black? You know, I mean, lights are amazing. You only put light in one part of the stage, everything else disappears. <clears throat> and then the work that people do with like puppets and stuff, I'm amazed with that. I, that is not my skill set, but I just, I mean, I, I love falling in love with other magical things 
that other people do and I want to know how to do them and so nothing's impossible. So it sounds like the first step is having the mindset that nothing is impossible. And then we add to that collaboration with a brilliant ensemble of artists. As it happens, you and I met as collaborators on an original work, Refracting Miss Julie, which was a highly collaborative process between all of the members of the creative team. One might say we were devising rather than writing the play. What's the difference? To me, devised theater is there's an idea for a piece and then there's some research and it could be book research or any kind of written research, but it's also research in interviewing, talking to other people. That's how I learned at least. And then the devising part is allowing all the theatrical elements to come into play, not simultaneously, but within the same week, you know, where there's no, it's not a playwright and I'm saying someone else's words that are written and already produced by Samuel French, you know, mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. That it's not a play that I've purchased and read and other people have done it many times before. It's a brand new original work that is co-created by an ensemble of theater artists. In poor theater, we all wear so many hats and we have so many desires of things we want to do and things, quite frankly, we're good at. And let's put those all like on the table and see what comes up. And then we make something. That's the devising part. We make something. And we make little little bits, moments, and we, at, at some point, we map them together. And then we might rearrange them and remap them together and see what makes the sense, what makes sense in the way that we want to tell this story. And then a director, might we say, emerges, or we've already we've always known that this person was the director, but it changes. And then it is a show that now we have written. But the devising part is the beginning part of it. It starts from almost improv, quite directly from improv sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes not. Sometimes someone brings in something like, this is what you say, this is what you say, this is the conflict, and I want it, and you're in separate light. We're working with light and space. That gets recorded in some way. And then it's notated. And then it becomes a th thing somehow. Not that <laughs> improv isn't a thing, it is, but it's ethereal. As soon as we repeat an improvisation, it's not an improvisation any longer. Right. But improvisation should always be part of the iteration. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're not listening. I learned that from Wynton Marsalis. So, Liz, you mentioned poor theater. And for me, um, saying those, those words might conjure images of theater that is like bare bones or low budget or poor theater, maybe like not good. But, of course, we don't mean poorly made theater and not always even um, low budget or anything. So tell us about the poor theater. Uh, yeah, so... To me, poor theater is a theater that really centers on the actor and that the space can be nearly any space and that the actors, they're telling the story. Now, I think the space is essential because 
the actors interacting with it, but it doesn't need to be a perfect set or a perfect rendition of the house or the couch or the blah, blah, blah. If we need light, we'll find a source of light. Does it need to be, you know, a perfect LED that has every color spectrum in it? No. I like to work with flashlights and little pin lights and, um, well, candles, but we can't do that anymore. <laughs> Fake candles. Uh, so to me, that's poor theater. It's not, it doesn't make any money. It's not, it's a... Uh, bad. It's not poor like bad. It has nothing to do with that. It just has to do with where the focus is. Mm -hmm. The story, the actors. And poor theater might be slightly less expensive. But I've seen poor theater done in really expensive ways. And it, it's really quite beautiful. I think Grotowski's version of poor theater is very actor-driven. My version of poor theater, uh, which is not written down in any way, <laughs> is the story in its essence and how can we most effectively tell the story and include the theatrical elements it needs. So Liz, I know I've been asking myself a lot of questions lately about what my work should be and what it should be examining as a response to our current social and political climate. And I got to say, I've experienced some real demoralization and frustration at times. Uh, how is it going for you living in this country right now as an artist and as a woman? Well, that just makes me cry. <laughs> because I sometimes I just feel so bereft of support out, out from the government and from the society and... You know, there's so many people that are left behind in this world. And as a white person, um, you know, I feel like sometimes I just want to stand back and let other people work. But as a woman, I want to fucking roar. And, and I, I really need to be able to do that. And that is where I can put my voice. And I can put my voice behind my students, my young my young friends, but I want to put my voice behind anyone who, who has a sound to make or who is scared to make a sound. So I want to be encouraging. I want to really, I want to be the person who people can stand on their shoulders. I also want to be able to stand on other people's shoulders. I really, I want that metaphorically and actually. How do you want to see the theater change to support this beautiful and bold vision you just shared with us? I want to see plays where there's an equal number of women and men. I want to see plays where women tell the main part of the story. I want to see plays, and this is not just plays, this is all kinds of drama. I want to see... I want to be a part of and see uh, pieces where the, a woman's point of view is the story and that the woman is not a tertiary or second part. And so it's so hard because I love the classics, 
And so how do we reimagine Shakespeare? Do we? I'm, I'm part of a, a female Lear where I might be playing Lear. Sure. Yes. yes. I say yes to that. Yeah. I want to, and, and I don't mind revisiting some of the things I've written already, like power to pleasing the sex lives of teenage girls might need to be revitalized. My Bacchae might need to come back. I have a little fantasy that Pentheus is played by a Trump-like character and is literally torn apart. Somehow it's not a bad thing. <laughs> like Agave doesn't regret it. <laughs> Maybe it's not Agave's son. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. Like, how do we do this where we can really rip someone apart and love it and not regret it? I mean, I have a lot of misunderstandings or non-understandings or confusions about the Bacchae, even though I've written an opera based on the Bacchae. And um, and then and most recently just seen a version where Ellen Lauren plays Dionysus, which is thrilling to see a woman play Dionysus. But why is that piece still being performed? And what the fuck does it mean? And... How do we, how can it be where we're not banished because there's an aggressor who is questioning female desire and female power, even if it's up the mountain where they're not even affecting the society. It's like just because they're enjoying themselves in some way that that somehow needs to be punished. Fuck that. You know, we, we don't need to be punished for our desire. For our our innate human qualities of of desire, of sex, of power, to take it into the now, yeah, why not? Like I'm interested in that. I'm interested in Medusa. I'm in a piece. Uh, I'm working on a piece uh, about Medusa, which mm. is also a part of the woman who was me. She we watch uh, we watch Clash of the Titans uh, in in the woman who was me. And with a seven-year-old boy. And what does that mean? You know, better to cut off her head than to deal with her passion and her power. And um, the fact that she is in her body and, and loves sex, you know. And that that's somehow wrong. This whole virgin whore thing. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in that dichotomy. I'm just not interested in it. And so I'm, I'm like both and... Can we have both and or, you know, because I'm not interested in actually I'm not interested in either one of those specifically. This idea of virgin is like this innocence and experience. What about that? Or there's like one act that changes us from virgin to non-virgin. I don't know. I am interested in that as a as a woman, as a young woman. I mean, that's in a way we did a lot of discussion in that in this piece that I wrote many years ago called Power to Pleasing the Sex Lives of Teenage Girls. I wrote that with two other women. Somehow my a lot of my artistic life has dealt with female sex and power and the giving up of or the misunderstanding using sex for power and I think there's got to be another way to deal with that. That the, the desire is not a bad thing, and that it's not a gendered thing. That one versus the other, and and it's all about speaking and listening. It's all about jazz. It all goes back to how, listening and what do you want? What do I want? What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? 
how am I going to look while I say it? There's so many different ways of, am I going to close the distance between while I say it? <laughs> because then it's different. And yeah, I'm fascinated by that. So speaking of things that fascinate us, I know you love discovering new projects and ideas and supporting artists and realizing their artist visions. As a producer with CTC, your title is Theatrical Development Producer. Let's talk more about that. I'm not sure I know what a theatrical development producer does exactly. Theatrical development producer. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in. New, new ideas, new works. I feel like it's a gift to have a group of people to offer support to an original idea that wants to be theatrical. People say, how about this? And I say, sure, let's have a conversation and see what can come of that as an idea. And we've done some readings of things and that have been, you know, fascinating pieces. And then we've also done some workshops and that has been really um, fruitful, very fruitful. And uh, so I'm interested in, in bringing new ideas to the table and seeing how they can come about. And I guess, I mean, that little seed got planted at Naropa. When I started writing pieces in conjunction with other ensemble mm -hmm. members, I never thought of myself as a playwright. I still don't. And yet there are four plays that have my name as a contributing writer, which I still find kind of surprising. <laughs> but a yeah, theatrical development producer, yeah, I make things. And I make things with CTC. I don't really make things with other people, except for in the, in the, in the classroom. So yeah, CTC is who I make things with. And there, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of collaborators, and I love that. But right now, we're in some really fruitful work with Peter Cranbaugh. Because he has another play called uh, Nahunkara. And, or Nahunkara. I, I still don't know exactly how to pronounce the title. But that's okay. Sure. It, that's a work in progress, yes, too. Yes. And um, so we'll be in residence at Denison University mm -hmm. this May uh, with some students. And we'll be making theatrical... Um, versions of these incredible scenes. This this play is completely magical. It takes place in two different time periods mm -hmm. and two different states in the United States in the 1800s. One early 1800s, one later 1800s, but a diff two different generations of a family. Mm -hmm. And the second version is in Colorado, and there's this snowstorm where it's 15 feet of snow, and then Ooh. everyone's snowed in, and they carve out these caves in the snow, and they live through the winter, and and they get lost, and it's dark, and they... I mean, it's so magical, and they end up with other people who they don't know who they're with and it's really quite a bit of a romp. It's almost like a midsummer, but it's in the midwinter. Right. And, um, so we're going to make, we're going to make some of this. There's so many yummy projects yes. on the horizon. You mentioned Peter Grambois, the playwright and his new play, Nahunkara, which brings us back to talking about making the impossible possible. And then the play that Peter sent to you, which turned into several years of development work and productions. And it's been very inspiring to watch the woman who was me grow over time. Tell me more about your creative process with that production. The Woman Who Was Me, a play for one woman by Peter Grimbois. 
I did a table read with Peter and a couple of other people just listening. And, and that was fantastic. And Peter and I had some conversations about what's possible and, and my ideas of sound and what's physically happening here. And, and what is this tree image? And so we did a lot of talking and I did a lot of reading and rereading and rereading of the play and I'll talk about what's possible. I predicted this play would be about a 50 minute play. I was wrong. And we only had an hour slot and the play was 75 minutes. So you know when you are first rehearsing a play, you don't know how long it's going to be. I mean, even a week before, it's like, are we going to be able to do this? Well, we didn't know. At least I didn't know. <laughs> and I think it was four or five days before the show, we realized this is not possible to do the whole piece. Fortunately, Sylvia Brown was had been helping me run lines because it's 75 minutes of lines. It's a, I mean, it's a lot of words. And so I needed help with that. So she knew the play intimately. And I was really scared about how we were going to cut this. And she said, she could tell. And she said, Liz, can I just do this? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> and she said, I said, you can't just do snippets. Like it's got to be chunks. Mm -hmm. And she said, I know, I know. And, and she I think she got back to me in 45 minutes. I mean, and mm -hmm. and then we labeled her the dramaturg. <laughs> you know, dramaturgs know how to put things back together, take things out and put things yeah, back together. Yeah. I know the meaning of everything. And yeah, we had to do that. And it, it flowed incredibly well. And it was within the time. In fact, so much, it flowed so well that the playwright, Peter said, you don't have to put anything back in as far as I'm concerned. And I, I fought to put things back in. I said, no, 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 no. We need, we need those parts back. And, and so in 2015, and we were able to do the full piece. Yeah. And we added everything back in, but maybe five lines. And then Jeremy organized this winter performance suite, which was at Theater Lab here in New York. Then we took it to uh, Boulder, Colorado, to Naropa. And there we established an an informal version of an act two. It was a talk back, but it was, we had guests from Boulder. It wasn't a talk back with just me. It was a talk back with me and artists, female artists in Boulder making work. And there we discovered, oh, this talk back is about female voices, empowering the female voice. What are we doing to get our voices out there? Because the character in The Woman Who Was Me, she's struggling to find her voice. She struggles. And only at the end is she starting to touch into it. And then it feels like, oh, she's ready to go. So then act two is, how are you ready to go? What are you doing? And so it's not a talk back. This talk back is like, it kind of bounces forward it bounces it back to the audience in the sense of let's talk about the here and now so liz now that we've discussed the here and now let's talk about the there and then 
I have to think you were a pretty imaginative kid. And from what you've said about growing up singing, it sounds like you're a bit of a born performer. So how did you find your way to a path as a professional theater maker? Yeah. So, I mean, the singing brought me into musicals. I loved musical theater. My grandmother, Stanton, who lived in Denver, she lived in a senior living center and they would take a bus to the, it was a barn. It was like, oh, I can't remember what it's called right now. But it was in Denver, a, a professional musical theater troupe and, uh, or company, I guess. And we would go and see musicals there. And it was really magical. The stage there would lower down so like there were these four columns in the center of where where country dinner playhouse that's what it's called country dinner playhouse so the stage would lower down after we had all our food and stuff there's these columns and then all of a sudden the the stage lowers down and then and there's actors on the stage like preset it was very magical and then we found out about auditions for a show called heaven help us and uh, i auditioned for that show and i got in and that was like the beginning of the end of me in theater. <laughs> the beginning of the end. Yes, I know that feeling. So you and I met several years ago now working on a CTC project. Uh, tell me the story of how you came to be a part of Convergence's Theater Collective. When I realized I didn't have a tribe any longer, so many people had kind of dissipated Um either out of New York or whatever, I decided to very consciously do a search. And I, in a way, I took the advice that someone had, ta- someone had given me about how to find an acting class, mm-hmm. which is ask people who you respect. Right. Their right. work, who they're working with. Mm-hmm. And so um, I made artist dates with people. I had coffee Mm -hmm. and I went to see work that I was interested in and talked to people. Jeremy was back in New York City and one of the people who was really recommended to me by Kate Kohler Amory is go hang out with Jeremy. And we had coffee and we sat on the swings in Central Park and just talked about what we do, who we are. Mm -hmm how we make work. And then Kate and Jeremy were working on a piece based on Miss Julie. And, and they asked me if I would be involved in that. And here we are. And that's when I got to meet you. Yes. And that's when I met you. (laughs) And I think that was the first piece that Jeremy and I worked on together. And we did some devising. Mm -hmm. We did some Mm -hmm. moments with that. And, and uh, I was in the chorus. I was the sound designer. Sound design, yeah. I was also like an ensemble person at one mm-hmm. point. And then at some point, I got to be um, Kristen. And then we ended up doing the whole piece at uh, out in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there again, I wore a couple of hats. Sound mm-hmm. designer and actor. And I have sound designed a few pieces for Jeremy, actually, mm-hmm. with CTC, and uh, and I haven't been the actor, and that's been great, too. But that's how we started, and thank God we haven't stopped. We've really collaborated on a lot of things, mm-hmm. and I've gotten to be a performer in 
a number of things with CTC. Babble, you know, and I was, I got to be a dancer. What? <laughs> I got people, people were standing on my shoulders and yeah, it was, I got to fly and bass flyers and it was super fun. So yeah, I've really enjoyed all the work that we've done. We've been in a lot of studios together, made a lot of different things. Some come to full fruition, some, you know, it's an experiment and we make a lot of work and that's the end so far. You never sure. really know. So we've talked a little about improvisation in terms of devising work. You mentioned earlier learning from jazz legend, Wynton Marcellus. How did you meet him? Well, I was really lucky after I came back from graduate school, I, I needed a job. Hey, Jazz at Lincoln Center is looking for someone. And so I got to work in the education department there. And I got to learn quite a lot from Wynton Marsalis because when we had uh, development meetings and staff meetings, he was there running the staff meeting. And not running it per se, but adding to it. And we would study rhythms and how rhythms inter, uh, how they lock together, like the clave rhythm or something. And then that's then how we should be listening to each other when we're talking. And that jazz is a form of democracy. It's a form of playing and listening and being in tune and being in harmony and saying very intricate things and responding. It's all about responding. Jazz is a form of democracy. I love that. It's such a revealing way to think of collaborative art making and how we communicate as art makers. Now, Liz, I know you have done a lot of classical theater as well as musicals, but I'm curious, how did you get into devising new works? I met this woman who was directing Winter's Tale and a good friend of mine from Colorado College was playing the king, Leontes. And he said, I think you should meet this director. She's looking for a musician to do some singing in the play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you should meet her. And so I met her, Rebecca Holderness. And we hit it off. And she had a sound designer. I didn't really know what a sound designer did for a play. But I met the sound designer and we totally hit it off. And then Rebecca had me in rehearsal and just said, make any sound you want anytime. You can sing any song anytime. I'd never been set free in a rehearsal mm -hmm. in that way. I didn't know anything about that in regards to theater. But I had in regards to music. And, and I really loved these, the way that that music would come out of me in the composition world, but it never occurred to me to put it in theater. I, honestly, I think that fueled this whole thing about devising theater and making making theater and all the design elements come together. Being have being a sound designer in the room, but that's again it it put one thing against the other or in concert mm -hmm. with the other, and opened my opened my eyes and ears even more. I mean, Rebecca and I had this company for nine years. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot, mm -hmm. an incredible amount. And like I said, these people who I met, Richard Armstrong, Wendell Beavers, Stephen Wong, 
and all the actors that we got to work with, amazing, incredible actors, I learned so much from. And then this opportunity came to go to graduate school. And that then added more to my repertoire of how to make work. Because even then, with Rebecca, we were doing shows that were written. They were scripted shows. Sure. I did not know what devising was. I knew how to devise a score. That's called composition. That's not called devising. And and very gradually, I called myself a sound designer, only because other people were calling me that. And then they were calling me a composer. And I was like, what? That So then I was like, okay, I am composing. I am writing music. I'm composing. Yes, I am. And then a few years later, I went to graduate school. And that is where I learned what, how to devise. What's driving you in your work right now as a theater maker, as a teacher, as a woman? The pure anger that I feel and the almost desperation of getting the voice out is really underscoring whatever I'm trying to do now. Right now, it might feel, it feels a bit like a struggle. Um, but I do think that, that women around our, the world, and, but, and specifically in this country right now, are feeling more empowered to uh, say what happened in the past, to call things out right now, and to hopefully make changes for the future. That's my hope. And if we are going to continue to encourage and empower women, I need to do it for myself, but we do it for each other. And it's not just woman to woman. It's like, you know, it's all of us yeah. in, inspiring each other. Yeah. So now we're inspired. So, but there's like a fire sometimes beneath the inspiration. And that hasn't always been. Sometimes I'm just inspired. A little more light. Sure. Right now, it does not feel very light. It feels a little desperate and there is some anger. And sometimes there's more than some. We can absolutely talk about empowering voices in the world and getting them out there. Creatively, politically, socially, you know, all of these ways that we can get them, get our voices out and make, empower us, women specifically. So Liz, I hear you're leaving soon to do a show in India. What an adventure. I have been invited to perform with the Oroville Theater Group. They are doing a Midsummer Night's Dream, and I'm going to be playing Titania and Hippolyta. So the Queen of the Fairies and um, the Amazon the Amazon Warrior. It's a mix of professional uh, theater artists mm -hmm. and community and yeah, I think it will be a, an incredibly international feel and cast and all that. Stuff. I'll be there for two months. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Okay. A few last things before we go. Who are some of the artists that inspire you? Sophie Amiva, Jeremy Williams, Simon, Simon McBurney. Then Steve Wong, who is my acting mentor and amazing human. 
I'm always looking to discover and enjoy uh, new or at least new to me female playwrights. Can you share with me a few of your current favorites? Teresa Rebeck. Afra Ben. Oh, there's a woman playwright who wrote about patriotism in the early 1900s, but I don't remember her name right now. So I've been collecting the names of female playwrights. Um, the League of Professional Theater Women has an entire program about female playwrights that are just not produced, but they've been amazing uh, writers. Last thing, please complete this sentence. Art is an amazing source of freedom and voice. Liz, it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on Questioning Artists today. I hope that, like me, today's conversation brought you inspiration and insight. Please explore CTC's website to find out more about our artists and projects and to sign up for our mailing list at convergencescollective.org. Questioning Artists is produced by Kate Michael Gibson and Jeremy Williams with collaborative consulting by Kalita Davis. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Jaworski. Visual imagery and animation was created for the show by Natalie Loveland. The conversation you just heard was recorded on October 21st, 2018. Until next time, friends, I send you all the best for the questions you're asking, the art you're making, and the connections you're creating to bring more light into this world. Thank you for being part of the collective conversation.